If you have a Bible, please turn to our gospel passage, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. We've been going through the first chapter of Mark for several weeks now, and today we've come to one of those passages in the Bible where Jesus is confusing. Um, If you've spent much time reading the gospels, you know that there are these moments where it's kind of a head-scratcher. Why is Jesus doing that? Why is he saying that? Why is he acting like that? This is one of those passages. And he's confusing in this passage in several ways. First of all, he's confusing emotionally. His emotions are just really strong, and they're hard to reconcile with each other. It, you don't, it's hard to see this in some of our English translations, but let me show you. In verse 41, it says he's filled with compassion. He's filled with compassion over a man who has a devastating disease. And, and this makes sense. I love this, Jesus. I love this part of him. There's a leper. And, and a leper was a victim of far more than a skin disease. At this point in time, in this culture... Leprosy robbed you of your health. There was no cure for it. It was quite often, when you were diagnosed with leprosy, a death sentence. But, but there was more to it than that, because leprosy was very contagious. And because leprosy was so contagious, it not only ended up robbing you of your health, it ended up also robbing you of your place in the community. Because while the community didn't have a way to cure leprosy, they did have a way to protect themselves from leprosy spreading through the village, spreading to others. So what would happen is, as a result, once you got diagnosed with leprosy, you you had to stay away from the community. And in having to stay away from the community, um, you ended up losing a lot. One of the key things you lost was your name. Because if you, had to, if you had leprosy, you had to go through town yelling out, leper, so that people didn't accidentally bump into you. So now you become known as, not Mark, or Cindy, or Jonah, you become known by your disease. There's the leper. So you lost your name. And it not only robbed you of your name, it robbed you of your occupation, it robbed you of your The habits you had developed up over the course of your whole life, your family, your fellowship, your worshiping community. And and so when it says in verse 41 that Jesus was moved with pity and that he stretched out his hand and touched this man and said to him, be clean. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that part of what has attracted so many of us to Jesus? His love, his care that he sees us and our brokenness, and that Jesus would touch someone who was untouchable, right? That the power in Jesus was greater than the, than the disease, right? And so Jesus, in touching him, was not contaminated and said that man was uncontaminated, right? We love this healing, merciful, compassionate power of Jesus. We love that he's moved with pity. But then we get the Jesus of verse 43. Jesus sternly charged the man. Literally, that verb, sternly, literally, it's snorting. It's based on a Hebrew word that means nostrils flaring in anger. 
These are two very different emotions, right? Right. First, he's moved with compassion for this man. And then the next thing we know, um, there's a song that Sting wrote about, the, the musician Sting wrote about his partner. He said, she can be all four seasons in one day. Um, she can be hot, she can be cold. You feel like that's Jesus right here, right? On the one hand, the compassion. On the next hand, he sternly nostrils flare. And then it says, and Jesus sent him away at once. And that word sent, it's the same word that was used back in verses 24 and 25. When Jesus casts out demons, it says he sent the demon out. So, wow. I mean, right? So, at the one hand, he has compassion and and pity on this man. But on the other hand, the same language of sending out demons, he sends this man away. This is kind of confusing if you're reading it, if you're trying to imagine your way into it, if you're trying to like see the face of Jesus as you're imaginatively reading scripture and you see these kind of two faces. And then there's another confusing thing. I mean, these are big emotions and they're hard to reconcile them. And then in verse 44, Jesus commands the guy that he just healed to say nothing to anyone. Now that's confusing. Why on earth does Jesus want the word of this man's healing to not get out? I mean, We've been reading through Mark chapter 1. Jesus is going around teaching and preaching and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom. Surely it would be good for people to know that when the kingdom come, not only do demons get cast out, not only is there teaching about it, but also diseases get healed. Surely he wants the word to get out. He just told the disciples back in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So why doesn't he want this man to talk about this healing? Now, in literature, there's a thing called poetics. It sounds like poetry. It has nothing to do with poetry. Poetics and literature is, is a te- is the, are the tools that an author uses to get the reader to understand what he's saying. So metaphor is a poetic. It's a a tool. Um, Parallelism, foreshadowing. All of these little things authors can do in what they write to get you, the reader, to understand what they're doing. One of the tools that authors use is they leave out information. Now, sometimes when there's information left out of a story or a passage... It's left out because it doesn't matter. Um, It's not germane. Have you ever been trying to tell a story and you've got a friend that keeps interrupting to get you to say something and you're like, I'm leaving that stuff out on purpose, dude. Let me tell my story, right? All right, so that's called a blank. When there's something left out that it doesn't matter. When there's something left out intentionally so that you work hard to figure it out, that's called a gap. This is literary poetics, all right? Why did Jesus not want the guy to talk about the healing? That's a gap. You're supposed to ask the question. It's supposed to cause you to scratch your head. It's supposed to not really measure up with the stuff that's gone before, where word is getting out, where he is teaching, where he is letting people know that he's got the power to cast out demons and all that kind of stuff. You're supposed to get to this part, and you're supposed to say, whoa, that's weird. And the answer comes in the next verse, verse 44. The answer comes, Jesus says, see that you say no one, nothing to anyone. Okay, that's weird. Here's the answer. 
But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Here's the deal. The sort of disease this man had, like I described earlier, was highly feared because it was highly destructive and highly infectious. Remember the early days of COVID? We didn't know if we could touch anything, remember? We were like uh, hand sanitizing out the wazoo. Um, our table out there still has stains on it where all the lacquer's been removed because we put hand sanitizer bottles there and we were scrubbing our bodies with stuff that, you know, strip lacquer off of furniture because we were so afraid of the infectious nature of it, right? That's why lepers were forced to live outside the towns in special colonies. One of the jobs of the priest in the temple in Jerusalem was to protect communities from infectious diseases by checking out people who claimed to be disease-free and making sure they were actually disease-free so that they could give them a bill of health so that the community would accept them back. The leper has to move out. The leper has to yell out leprosy and all this stuff. All of that was coming from the Old Testament, these laws. And who gets to declare someone fit to come back in the community? The temple. That's a temple job. And so Jesus is treading on very dangerous ground. Remember when he was crucified? Remember the key accusation that led to his crucifixion? This man claimed he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. You don't mess with the temple. You don't displace the temple. And Jesus is doing temple work here. Did you notice the guy did not say, if you will heal me? No, the guy begged Jesus, if you will, can you make me clean? That's weird, isn't it? You wouldn't go to your doctor because you have a disease and say, doctor, can you, you ask, will you heal me, right? But he asked, will you make me clean? And that's just what Jesus did. Jesus says in verse 41, I will be clean. See, Jesus is not just healing. He's doing temple work. He's cleaning. He's restoring people to community, to life. So the issue isn't just if word gets out, Jesus' like, uh, attractiveness will increase. He'll be mobbed by massive crowds or something. That does happen, but that's not what Jesus is concerned about. The main issue he's concerned about is people are going to misunderstand. Remember the first half of our gospel reading. Jesus, he's off by himself praying. When the disciples track him down and find him, they say, hey, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. You're killing it. These miracles, the teaching, it's working. They can't get enough of you. Now, the language here is very nuanced. In the original Greek, in Mark chapter 1, verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him, these are the disciples, searched for Jesus. If you write in your Bible, you can underline that word search. In Greek, literally, they pursued Jesus. They hunted Jesus. In the next verse, it says in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Again, the English language here is tricky. The Greek word behind looking for you, it occurs 10 times in the Gospel of Mark. 
And in every one of its ten occurrences, it's a negative word. The first two times this word we translate looking for happens, it describes people who are interfering with Jesus and obstructing his ministry. The next two occurrences describe people with disbelief and faithfulness, trying, faithlessness, trying to get a hold of Jesus. The remaining six times the word is used in Mark's gospel, it's when the people who want to kill Jesus are searching for him in order to kill him. You see, the disciples are pursuing Jesus as emissaries of the crowds who are determined to control Jesus, not submit to him or follow him. Enthusiasm in the gospel should not be confused with faith. Sometimes it can oppose faith. And this is the point, and it's so important for us to see, Jesus' message was hard to understand. And a big barrier he faced was misunderstanding. Not just the religious and the political leaders, but the crowds and even his own disciples did not understand who he was, what he was saying, what he was doing. You see, their dominant conception of God and God's kingdom was that God was going to deliver them socially and politically from Rome. And God was going to establish a free and independent Jewish state. And out of that, peace and prosperity would flow for all of God's people. So Jesus comes along and he uses those words, God and God's kingdom. And everyone is just constantly filling into those words the ideas that they've always grown up thinking about those words. They're slotting in to the words Jesus is saying. He's saying kingdom. They're filling that word with their own preconceived ideas and categories, which were close, but they were far enough off that it was a distortion. And this happens all over the Gospels. Jesus is constantly portrayed as saying things that his family and his friends don't understand because they hear a word that they grew up thinking about in a certain way. Or they hear an idea talked about and they grew up thinking about an idea in a different way. So this is the secrecy issue. Jesus is just starting out. He knows that what he's going to have to do is teach over and over and over because it's so difficult to hear a new thing. It's so difficult to learn to see a new thing. Now, what was it that Jesus was teaching and doing that was so difficult? Go back to verse 14. After John's arrest, Jesus came into Galilee announcing the gospel, which means the news that's good. Announcing some good news. What was the gospel? What was the news that was so good? It says right in the next line, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe that that's good news. There it is. That is the gospel. The one true God has finally taken charge of the world. 
And he's doing this in and through Jesus. The ancient hopes have been fulfilled. But in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to heal the world is finally here. It's being launched in Jesus. God is grasping the world in a new way to sort it out. And to fill it up with his glory and his justice. Just like he always promised he would do. That old ancient sickness that's crippled the world. And humans with it is being cured at last. So that new life can rise up in its place. The good news is that that happened in and through Jesus. That is what the Bible calls the gospel. So here's the deal. It's hard to understand what the gospel is. Because we fill that word with preconceived ideas. It's hard. It's hard to shift from a certain way of thinking about that word. It's hard to let the words of Jesus himself actually define that word. And if it's difficult for you to grasp, so what is the gospel? That's okay. It's normal. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's simplistic. This is hard to wrap our minds around. What does it mean that the gospel is the news that in Jesus the kingdom has come? That's what the Bible defines the gospel as. It's hard to wrap our minds around that because just like Jesus' family and friends and the religious leaders and the political leaders and even his disciples, we too have preconceived ideas supported by a very sophisticated system of belief about what the gospel is. And if we're not careful, those unrecognized, unacknowledged preconceptions will turn God into an idol. A tame puppet that we invoke to protect the status quo. Be very careful if you come from a kind of conservative position. If the gospel is a reinforcement of your conservative views. And be very careful if you come from a progressive position. And the gospel is just a reinforcement of your progressive ideas. Just like the first hearers of Jesus, we need to let Jesus reshape our notions of God and his kingdom and his work in this world. And that takes time and it takes humility and it takes submission and it takes the willingness to follow Jesus so that we can see and understand that the one God, the stunningly generous creator of all things... That he is the source of all delight and all daylight and all that is lovely and lively and liberating. That the supremely wise ruler and guide of the nations that he made promises and he keeps them. And he is the Lord of the angels and he is utterly faithful and utterly loving. And like I said before, it's love and grace and compassion that just goes right to the core of his being. And his love is as broad and as great as humankind itself. It's as high and as deep as, as our miseries. And it is more powerful than death. And this God has done something in and through Jesus to renew and restore Creation. That is a lot to take in. Whether you're religious or not, or conservative or not, or or non-political or progressive or not, this stuff is complicated. But the disciples, they finally get it by the end of the Gospels. And so can we. 
so can you. And now we've come to the central point of the passage. And really the central point, the only point of the sermon this morning. A critical issue for you and me to really grasp and really be grasped by God and his kingdom is prayer. It is critical in this story. It was critical for Jesus, and it is critical for us to get it. Did you notice the way our passage started? Behind all of Jesus' public actions, behind his teachings, behind his miracles, behind the controversy, behind all of this lay Jesus' life of total dependence on the one he called Abba. Father. And we see this in his habits of prayer. Mark chapter 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he. What does your Bible say? Prayed. And once again. As is so often the case in Mark's gospel. I I think maybe it feels to me like more. More in Mark's gospel than any of the other ones, the nuanced details of the words matter. Notice where Jesus goes to pray. It says in my Bible, my translation, the ESV, he goes to a desolate place. It's the word that can also be translated wilderness or desert. And the attentive reader will recognize the repetition Even though we're still in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we've already encountered this word, wilderness or desolate place. We're just a few verses into Mark's gospel, and this is the fifth time that word has been used. In verse 3, we read of Isaiah's voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's the same word. Aramon is the word in Greek. And then in verse 4, we see John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. Same word. And then in verses 12 and 13, in the brief account of Jesus' temptation, twice we're told that it occurred in the wilderness. So by the time we get to our passage this morning in verse 35, the wilderness or the desolate place, it's the same word, has become a code word. It's, it's, It's got literary and theological baggage that the author of the gospel is already attached to it. So by the time we get to our passage this morning, the wilderness, the desolate place, is a place where momentous and decisive events occur. Right? It was in the wilderness that John the Baptist announces, right? It's in the wilderness where Jesus does it. See, the wilderness is be so when you read he went out to a desolate place play. It doesn't start Hallmark music, you know, like that beautiful music at the beginning of all creatures great and small. Y'all watching this on PBS? Amazing. I I hear the music start and I just want to get a cup of coffee and tea and sit by a fire. It's all cozy. When you you get to Jesus goes out to the wilderness, this is not, oh, he's going to have a lovely little quiet time. Isn't that cute? It's all creatures great and small. No, this is a place where the holy and the demonic vie for power. So if we're paying attention, 
when we read that Jesus got up very early while it was still dark and went out to the Aramon, the wilderness, the desolate place, horror music starts. Scary music starts. We do not think of this as a tranquil, carefree, spiritual oasis. This is not the place you go and have your quiet time each morning that just warms the cockles of your heart. This is a dangerous place. This is the place of temptation. Right, the last time Jesus was there. This is the place where decisions of vocation and repentance must be made. This is the place where there will be a forced decision to choose between the call of God and the sirens of destruction. And sure enough, while Jesus is at prayer in the Eremon, here comes the tempter. And his name is Simon and his companions who find him and say to him, everyone is searching for you. See, if you're reading it like literature, that's the temptation. Everybody wants you back in Capernaum where you continue to be the local wonder worker. Come back. That's the temptation. Will Jesus give in? What's he going to do? Will he go back? Will he allow the way Isaiah proclaimed to become changed from a straight path to a cul-de-sac? Verse 38, we get the answer. Jesus says, no, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Or to put it theologically, no, I'm going to go to the cross, not to Capernaum. He's faced the crisis. The temptation has been met. And Jesus has remained faithful to his messianic call. So this is not about the virtues of prayer moments in quiet gardens before work, before breakfast. No, this is about prayer in the fierce place. Fair, prayer in the wilderness. Prayer when the chips are down. Prayer when temptations are overwhelming. When the possibilities of doing something other than what we were called to do have become so brightly attractive, so deeply compelling. This is about discovering the true life through the narrow path of self-abandonment and faith in the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This is about giving yourself over 100% to God. This is about becoming most fully your true self when you abandon yourself to God. To what God? This God who receives you and he receives me as children. Right? Remember the baptism passage? This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Why are we so foolish? Why do we resist relinquishing control to God, to the God who is the source of life and love and liberation? We need to seek God when the chips are down. And we need to learn to call on God because he treats us like sons and daughters. Following Jesus does not mean your career becomes fulfilling. 
It does not mean work will be satisfying. It does not, following Jesus, if we look at his life, it will lead us into the wilderness. It will lead us to places of temptation. It will lead us into trials. Following Jesus will lead us to gardens of anxiety and suffering and persecution. It will lead us to wildernesses where we come face to face with the brunt of evil powers who align themselves against the Lord and His anointed. This is why work is hard. This is why being a lawyer is hard. Being a teacher is hard. Being a mother, a father is hard. Being a a neighbor is hard. This is why work is hard. Because all work is our obedience to God's call to go into the broken places, to draw the world up into the passion. This is why it's hard. And it being hard should not mean, oh, I need to find something else out to do. When we are there in the place of temptation, in the place of suffering, in the place of confusion, in the the challenge to give up and to quit and give in, when we are there, we should remember the father abandoned Jesus at his darkest moment so that our help is secured. We have to learn to pray. We have to five about Jesus going out to pray. It is very similar to the language of verse 39 of Jesus going out to preach and to cast out demons. What we see is that for Jesus, prayer was just as much the work as the work. Jesus cannot extend himself out in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and his purpose with the Father. And and his oneness with the Father compels him out in mission. You can't separate these two. To pray is to stand between the one true God and the world he loves. To pray, to really pray, is to enter the place where the love of God and the life of this world are somehow pulled together. Learning to pray from Jesus is learning to be utterly humble before God and utterly human in reflecting God into the world. All prayer stands with arms outstretched, one to embrace the loving God and the other to embrace the needy world. So if we want to become truly human, If we want to be a missionary church, if we want to really be missionaries in this city, if we want to be the kind of people who will be moved with pity, who will stretch out our hands and touch the wounds of the world with healing compassion, if we want to become the kind of people who are neither hardened nor destroyed by the pain and the suffering of our jobs, then we must be people of prayer. We have to be. Prayer is as much our work 
as our deeds of love and kindness, as our labor for justice and truth and beauty. Prayer is a critical part of what it means to be a human. We are supposed to be bringing God's love to bear on the world. And if it doesn't start in prayer, with prayer, it will end up being just another agenda that we bootleg into this word gospel, into these words kingdom. Only with prayer at the center will the work of the kingdom in this city, in our families, in our jobs, with our neighbors, only with prayer at the center will the kingdom move forward. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.